the story behind the story in faith, culture, news, and entertainment. This is this is Billy Hallowell. Hey guys, welcome to the Billy Hallowell podcast. I am really excited for this interview because I think there's something in it that will really move you. I know it moved me deeply. I had a chance to sit down with Kate Bowler. She's a professor at Duke Divinity School. She's also the author of the book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Kate's story is incredible in that she's an inspiration. The way that she has reacted to really tragic news in her life is incredible. It left me thinking deeper about my own life. See, Kate was diagnosed with incurable stage four cancer just a few years ago, and she's in her late 30s, highly accomplished, has a family, and here she is faced with this indescribably horrible diagnosis. And the way that she has chosen to react to that is something that I think can teach a lesson to all of us. So I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to dive too much into her story. I want to let you hear from her, and I'm just going to introduce this interview now. Please listen through the end. It's incredibly important. I think there's so much that we can all learn from Kate. Here's the interview. Hey, Kate, how's it going today? So glad to talk with you. It's going okay. Well, well, I am. I'm happy to have you on. I've wanted to have you on here for a while on the podcast, and I'm excited to get a chance to speak with you because I think what you are speaking on, and just so everybody knows, um, Kate is the author of "Everything Happens for a Reason" and "Other Lies I've Loved," and I really love that title. I think it's such Aww. a <laughs> fabulous title. Um, <laughs> especially in light of your story. And, you know, just to kind of dive into your story, you were diagnosed with incurable stage four colon cancer a couple of years ago. Uh, and I, I wanted to first ask you, and I know you've spoken about this at length, but just so people can get a sense of what that was like for you as someone in their 30s receiving that news. Yeah, sure. I mean, like there's no cancer in my family. So when I was started having stomach pain, I just, I mean, it, it wasn't even on my radar. I just thought, wow, another annoying vestigial organ. You know, <laughs> I've already had my appendix taken out, <laughs> like take something else. So yeah, I mean, I started going to doctors and just said like, why does it hurt? And please figure this out. And then eventually it started hurting more. And I started using my louder and louder indoor voice. And, uh, finally, um, I was like, no, I'm not leaving, leaving this office until you give me a scan because it's, it's something. I just didn't think it would be anything life-changing. And, uh, yeah, then they called me back a few days later at my office at work to tell me that I had stage 4 cancer. I mean, and it was, un it was just unbelievable. It was like somebody else. What, like I, had, I was an actor in somebody else's movie all of a sudden. I just I couldn't wrap my brain around it. Well, and I was going to say to you, I think so many times, you know, we think when we hear stories of people, oh, gosh, you know, it's it's so horrible. And but you think it would never be me. Right. And the reality is oh, yeah. it's any of us. I mean, in in those moments, you know, hearing you say yeah. it's like being an actor in someone else's story. I mean, what what was going through your head? Well, I mean, your brain stops when you get news like that, you just can't make your brain make the next thought. And then the only thought I could come up with was, but I have a son. And I think that's kind of what it gets down to. Like when you get down to the studs of your life, you find yourself saying the thing that matters most, which is like, no, you don't get it. I have a family. Like 
have I have people who need me. I have a life that's built on this love. Like this can't end. And what's so weird to me when other people like, I don't know, you always have that awkward moment where you like have a chiropractor appointment or like get a massage or something. You have to fill in that intake form and all my stuff always looks really depressing. (laughs) So I'm always like struggling with disclosure at that moment. Um, But the other day I said, you know, uh, yeah, I I try to like use my chatty voice from like blah, 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 stage four cancer, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, And the first comment I always get is, well, was it in your family? And what I hear them saying in a way like is like, oh, it's contagious, right? Like, yeah, everyone just wants to know, well, it's you, not me, right, 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 right. And I, I find that like intense distancing, one of the loneliest things I've ever been through is like people look at me, and then all of a sudden they're trying to figure out why me, not them. Wow, that, wow, that is. And I think as you're speaking about this, I'm thinking, and that's why I'm pausing here, you know, am I guilty of this with people? Do we, and I'm sure we've all been, but you know, when somebody goes through something like this, and as you spoke about the things that were going through your mind and and what you were thinking, I mean, so often in life, and I'm sure you've done this too, as a person who's accomplished so much in in your life, we focus on certain things as important and it's not that they're not, but, but but I think you sometimes you think through, okay, where, where are my priorities? Even hearing your yeah. story, um, where yeah, should they like be? You realize so quickly, I mean, how much doesn't matter? Like, yeah, I didn't think I was defined by shiny things, but man, was I not disappointed when people brought them up. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> I was super happy to have it worked into a bio. Right, and right. Like, and then it was weird because like during the walk from that phone call, to to over to the hospital I felt like in a way it was so weird but and it's it started then and it lasted for a long time but it's like I lost I it's like I lost the appetite for ambition like I just didn't care about shiny things anymore and I you know I think part of just having to continue to live I said I sound reluctant when I say that, but like it is a little weird to like be shifting from this like preparing to die mode to you know what I'm trying to do now. But it is funny that like one of the things I didn't miss when I was really preparing myself for the worst was I never ever missed that like tinny taste of ambition and wanting to be you know loved in the eyes of others. Like it it went away, and what I found was. People loved me anyway, but they were seeing me for who I really am. Wow. Well, and let me ask you this, because um, as someone who teaches, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School, you know, teaching about Christian history and looking at the Christian faith in this country um, and beyond, you know, what what beliefs, if any, were mm-hmm. impacted or shaken you know, after you had the news and then after journeying through that news and the days and the weeks, I mean, were there certain beliefs that were challenged? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of, and that's partly, you know, why I titled it like, and other lies I've loved is like the things I found there that surprised me and upset me, frankly, (laughs) are things that I like, I mean, these are heresies I love. Like I am deeply (laughs) invested in the idea that I am somehow special, that like me, you know, and I, I might have said like, well, I'm a really hard worker, but I think I thought somewhere in there that being a really good Christian might give me different outcomes than other people. Like maybe, maybe I'm 
I'm the exception to the rule that bad things happen or could happen to anybody. And like the more I started digging, and that's why I started writing, I was just trying to be honest. Like, didn't I really expect that things were going to turn out all right? And didn't I sort of think that I would have something to do with it? And it was like, frankly, pretty embarrassing to to say like, well, that the prosperity gospel that I studied and been an expert in was not so different from what I found myself thinking the second I got diagnosed. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because I wanted to ask you about miracles and the belief mm-hmm. that miracles are still possible. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that and where you are, where you stand now on miracles in light of where you are and, and how that sort of meshes with what you just discussed even. Sure. Well, I'm, I mean, I am, I am decidedly pro-miracle uh, <laughs> insofar as I would love one. <laughs> I would love that. Um, and I do believe that, and this is one thing I definitely learned from the prosperity gospel was that they live lives of open wonder. Like they're, they are so excited about what God might do. And there's a kind of delight that I would love to hold on to. The bit that I have to let go of, though, is the idea that, um, is that there is that certainty yields, I mean, that faith yields certainty, that I can guarantee that things are going to work out for me. And I noticed right away in the way people wanted to pray for me, they were really hoping that I would double down on like a formula, like pray in this place, pray with these words, pray with this particular anointed person of God. And, you know, partly because I need to stay being a mom who lives here at my address and, you know, like had stuff to do as well as getting cancer treatment. I tried hard to just say, you know, God, like, I think I'm going to have to give up on formulas and I'm going to have to trust that if something wonderful will happen, that you know where I live. Wow. Well, and, you know, you have not slowed down. It seems like a lot of people (laughs) would slow down. They would. And maybe you have in some ways. I don't know, but it doesn't seem that way. You've you've written a book. You're working. You were having we're doing this interview right now. What has been your outlook in in terms of that, in terms of continuing life? Yeah. Well, I guess like what I realized almost right away was that cancer wants everything. I mean, it wants all your money. It wants all your time. It wants all your hope. It threatens to make your life incredibly small and lonely because, you know, you have this terrible diagnosis and everyone is like tralala lying around, which is not true, but that's what you think <laughs> during like the worst <laughs> moments. And I, um, I just decided that I was going to make cancer as small as I possibly could. And, and that to me, I guess I've always had a vision of like the best version of my life would be one of competing loves, like things I love so much that they like jockey for space. So I thought, okay, then what, what do I love? Well, I love my son and my husband. I love my family and I'm obsessed with my friends. But, like, that is only part of the day. (laughs) So, like, what (laughs) happens the rest of the day? Um, So, yeah, I started getting really, like, laser-focused about just the – I mean, the creative writing that became the memoir, that was just, like – that was just an experiment. That was like, well, let's see if this works. And so I wanted to try to to just do as much beautiful work as possible. Like, because that's the great gift – of being somebody with an institution that will, you know, let me teach and write is like, oh yeah, it's my job to, to enjoy this little shelter from the storm and try to create beautiful things. So 
cancer will take up as little space as possible, even though that feels impossible half the time. And, and the, the rest, I'm just going to be really focused. The other nice thing about that is like, I, um, cancer is a hilarious waste of time. Like most of my last two years have been spent in waiting rooms or getting blood work done. And so I, I write, I write in waiting rooms. Sometimes I even did interviews. <laughs> from like, I mean, not for my writing, but I was, you know, writing an academic book. And so, I mean, people who I was interviewing come, would sometimes come and sit with me during chemo. It was, it was a great way to pass some miserable time. What, what are you hoping by sharing your story? And I, I have to tell you, you are a breath of fresh air to talk to. And it's just, it's, I, and I mean that. I mean, it's, it's amazing hearing your outlook. And I think it's inspiring to a lot of people who are facing things and they're not sure that they feel like they can live life yeah. and continue moving forward. What are you hoping that people take away from everything happens for a reason and from your story? Yeah, well, if I were just going to pick one thing, it wouldn't be like, wow, look at that resilient person with, you know, <laughs> and her special problems. Because like, as I mentioned, I'm like trying to give up on being special. <laughs> I, I would really love it if the world were a little gentler for people like me. Because, I mean, what I, the reason why I wrote everything down was it was almost impossible to say what I, was happening out loud, which was, I am so afraid, and I don't really know how to be positive when I'm, you know, worried that I'm coming to the end of myself, and I'm not sure what small talk means in the context of this party when everything I can think of is horribly depressing. Like, every bit of, every bit of these public scripts that we live in were really constricting. And so I wrote down all of this honesty, not so much so people would think that there was just this story about me, but to try to shape some language around how people can talk to and think about people like me, people who will have persistent and ongoing problems and who are not a problem to be solved, but just like a person to be loved. So that's probably why I wrote like all the like slightly bossy appendices. <laughs> Be like, please do not say these things any longer. Also, please give us presents. We love them. Well, I do think that you hit on something important, too, is that we are notoriously, as human beings, like inappropriate, and we don't say things that are helpful sometimes. And I think hearing, and because people don't openly discuss these things, and we should because it's part of the human experience, we then continue to not know how to respond and say things properly. And so to have somebody say, this was not helpful, this was is actually harmful, or it's problematic, or it just doesn't feel good to hear, is a helpful thing. It really is. Well, it makes me feel like an Eeyore sometimes. Um, also, I clearly have inspired fear in the hearts of anyone approaching me with small talk. But I do think that we've gotten out of the habit of, of like ambiguity, and I think loving ambiguity, right? Like when you meet someone who has had something bad happen, like you don't really know why it happened, truthfully. Like no one – and having a million questions and like conversations about the cause like just doesn't get – at the result, which is that someone's life has been changed and they need people around them to love them and to tolerate their joys and their sorrows without rushing in to explain them. Absolutely. And and how has your dialogue and your thoughts, um, your dialogue with God and your thoughts about God, how has some of that evolved or changed during the last couple of years? Yeah. Well, I think I thought I was like in the business of being a really good Christian, and that required a lot of hard work. And wasn't God delighted by my many efforts? <laughs> I was like, 
I mean, I just, I just did what I do always, which is like hard work. And the great joy of being this sick and feeling the presence of God is that God's love and presence does not rely on my effort. And so I've tried to like relax into God's love and just know in the worst moments, God will be there. It happened before and it will happen again. And I just need to concentrate on being aware of God's mercies in my life rather than feeling like I'm trying to earn them. Wow. Is there, any, is there anything that maybe we haven't discussed that you'd want to say about the book or about your story? I know a lot of times in interviews, it's like, here are the questions and we're done. But I love, <laughs> I love a podcast because you can just say, hey, you know, is there anything else that maybe we haven't discussed, any points you'd want to make maybe? You know, I think maybe I would just add that like my illness, like cancer and the drama they're in, it's kind of a casserole illness. Like it's the sort of thing that everyone knows you're supposed to be kind. I just, in the last six months or so, I've had all kinds of friends who've had really, really terrible things happen, but they're all kind of, you know, they're just, they're things they didn't necessarily want to be public about, or they get a lot of questions about. And I just hoping that the love people are extending to me, people feel comfortable extending it to other people. Like, I think that God is not disappointed by these acts of mercy. (laughs) You know, like, there'll never be too much love, even if, you know, people aren't really sure how to explain why some people are suffering and other people are not. Well, Kate, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Billy Hallowell Podcast. Visit Billy on Facebook or Twitter at Billy Hallowell for more on faith, culture, entertainment, and plenty more.